Welcome to Nightlife, the podcast. Picasso. He's considered one of the true geniuses of 20th century art. Many people say he was the greatest 20th century artist. Of course, he lived to a ripe old age of 91, which means he got to produce hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of artworks. Um, He can be a bit hard to get your head around, especially when you consider he went through a lot of different periods, uh, neoclassical, rose and blue, political paintings like Guernica, uh, and then of course there's cubism. A bit like cubism. There are lots of sides to Picasso. This year marks 50 years since his death. Tonight, Lorraine Kibiotis from the National Art School is here in studio to talk about Picasso. Hello, Lorraine. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Suzanne. It's great to be here. So, look, Picasso, just broadly, he really is considered, you know, is, is it the most influential artist of the 20th century, do you think? Well, look, I think he's one of the most influential artists of the 20th century, certainly. I mean, he had a passion for so many things. It wasn't just one art form. And I think that's a little bit of a clue as to why he was so influential. Mm. You know, he was obviously was a painter. We, of course, we remember him for his famous paintings. But, you know, he was also a sculptor, a ceramicist, a theatre designer, printmaker, poet and a playwright. So he did a lot of things. And, you know, and I think because he lived so long and, you know, if we think back through art history at the artists who have lived as long as Picasso. He was 91 when he died. You know, you're looking at the um, the ilk of, you know, Michelangelo, who was also around 90, um, Titian, who was also 89. Did Michelangelo make it that, that yes. old in that? In yes. That, in, Can you imagine? Ages? Yeah. Wow. It's because he, he never bathed, Suzanne. <laughs> I think we've discussed that before. Now, tell us about Picasso's birth because there are actually some stories about that. Yeah, like, look, Susanna, I think like any great artist, um, there's always, you know, a story, some sort of mythical story about their birth and, you know, Picasso is no different. Apparently his mother had had a very difficult birth and he was such a weak baby that um, when he was born, the midwife actually thought he was stillborn. So she just put him aside on a table to go and attend to his mother. And um, apparently the doctor was his uncle and saved him. Doctors at that time apparently, you know, were allowed to smoke, you know, anywhere they wanted to. And he had quite a big cigar and uh, and literally goes over to the baby and just blows a whole mouthful of, you know, cigar smoke on the baby. And of course, you know, the baby starts coughing and they realise it's alive. And um, Brought to life. Brought to life. Smoke. That's right. That's right. Um, and he was christened with 20 names. 20. I think they were so happy to have him that they gave him no less than 20 names. They named it after, you know, a whole bunch of saints and relatives. I mean, you know, if, if I if I remember the name correctly, I may get some of these wrong, but I think it was Pablo Diego Jose Francisco de Paula Juan Nepomuceno Maria de los Romedios Cipriano de la Santimissima Trinidad Ruiz e Picasso. My goodness, I hope you didn't have to fill out official forms with all of that. No, could you imagine a passport? Be the whole first page. (laughs) So what about his upbringing then? Well, you know, what's really interesting, again, uh, with a lot of very, you know, hard-hitting rock star artists, there's always this idea that they were a bit of a child prodigy. And again, you know, Picasso was no different. I mean, uh, they say that he... uh, at the age of 14, blitzed the one-month qualifying exam to the Academy of Fine Arts in Barcelona. And he did that in just one week. 
Although, you know, I've also heard very apocryphal stories that, you know, he blitzed it in just one day, but I think he did take a week, despite being two years younger than the official requirement. But, you know, when you take into account, Suzanne, that his dad was actually a painter, a teacher and a museum curator, he was already living in that world of the arts. So he'd already had quite a substantial art training by that particular time. So, you know, it's no surprise. And so where did he go after the Academy of Fine Arts? Well, from there he went to uh, the Academy of San Fernando in Madrid, but uh, he was only 16 when he went there, but he actually dropped out because he didn't like formal education. And, um, and you know, I guess a little bit like Michelangelo, he really wanted to be seen as a solitary genius, you know, beholding to no one for his education, just sort of having that, mm. you know, inherent creativity. But um, he hung out, went back to Barcelona. He actually freaked one of the city's most famous cabarets um, where all the intellectuals and artists hung out, um, El Catragats, the four cats. And, um, you know, and it's interesting because he talks about this period and sort of his growth into an artist. And, you know, a, and he said, um, you know, when when I was a child, my mother said to me, you know, if you become a soldier, you'll, you'll be a general. And if you become a monk, you'll end up as the Pope. But instead, I became a painter and wound up as Picasso. <laughs> So, yes, uh, not too much humility. No, no. Uh, We are talking about the legacy, the life and times of Pablo Picasso. It's the 50th anniversary of his death and lots of events are planned right around the world. Look, Diane Sunbury just says, paintings give me migraines. His do. His do. Well, that's interesting because, you know, they are a lot to take in, Suzanne. Mm. Um, You know, especially if you're looking at his cubist period because what you're really looking at is a fractured picture plane. So it's not a calming picture to look no, at. that's right. And your eye is constantly moving. So, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised. There you go, Di. That's, uh, the art teacher has allowed that, uh, that point of view. So how did he make it then? How did he get his big break? Oh, well, okay, so he's in Spain. And where it's all happening at the moment is Paris. Mm. So, you know, he ups and moves to Paris. He, he actually goes there in around 1900 and then uh, comes back in around 1904 and actually really settles there and starts exhibiting in the Paris Salon where all the avant-garde, you know, artists are showing. And uh, I think his big break really came when um, these avant-garde collectors and uh, critics started, you know, picking up his work. People like Leo and Gertrude Stein, you know, Americans who are over there living in Paris, you know, they were really into buying the the new avant-garde artists. And I always think this is fascinating, Suzanne, because, you know, I often ask myself the question, would I have bought a Picasso when mm. he was an unknown? Was, would his art, because art at that stage, he was painting in a little, you know, bit of his rose period. He'd just come out of his blue period. And um, and his work was still actually quite classical. He hadn't quite broken into cubism yet. But, you know, um, Leo Stein and, you know, Sister Gertrude liked his work. They were collecting uh, the avant-garde artists. And, um, you know, uh, I think Leo Stein actually wrote in his diary that he saw two pictures by a young Spaniard who he considered a genius of considerable magnitude and, you know, one of the most notable draftsmen living. So, you know, quite an accolade for someone who was, I think, I don't know, was he not even 21 Mm. yet? So, uh, you know, quite quite an amazing. Anyway, he bought two. Leo bought two paintings, uh, took them home. And one of them is, you know, he told his sister Gertrude that she'd, uh, that he'd bought this particular painting. It was Girl with a Basket of Flowers. And Gertrude was horrified. They were having dinner. She threw down a silverware and she just said, well, you've done it now. I, you've, I've spoiled, you've spoiled my appetite. I can't eat. 
Because she found it distasteful or she, that he spent found the money? It, yeah, she found it distasteful. Um, she grew to love it. She actually mm-hmm. grew to love this and she would not let it go, even for, you know, a huge sum of money. And, you know, this particular painting that I think they got for, you know, a few hundred francs actually sold in 2018 for US $115 million. Whoa. Yeah, That's a so good investment. Yeah, yeah, they were getting in there on the ground level. Yeah, um, Lorraine, just explain the rose and the blue period. Oh, to sure, me. sure. Okay, well, he went through his blue period first. So at this stage, he's still painting in quite uh, a um, a classical mode. So mm. you can still recognise people there, are, um, and it's quite a subdued palette. Uh, some uh, art historians say that he was actually went through his blue period and used monotone, you know, uh, hues because he just couldn't afford paint. He was, you know, quite poor at the time. And in fact, um, you know, there are stories also, reports of him having to actually burn some paintings and burn drawings to keep warm. Uh, he was, you know, so broke. So uh, they're quite sombre. And then uh, he sort of discovers he his one form of entertainment that he could afford to go to was a circus. So he used to hang out quite a lot with acrobats and started drawing them and painting them and moved into his rose period, which was sort of a little happier and, you know, um, not as subdued. Right. So we're talking about his mood, not necessarily the colours yeah. that he used. Yeah. Oh, well, and he did and use he those colours yeah. too. So he sort okay. of did go from a very blue palette to a very pink palette. Right. And now one of his most shocking early pieces is uh, Demoiselles. Talk yes. to us about Yeah, this. yeah, Demoiselles d'Avignon. Uh, it was sort of, it was the painting that really broke the canon of art history. I mean, you know, Picasso had been looking back to, to Cezanne and to Cezanne's work and, you know, he really considered Cezanne as a god of painting. And Cezanne was really trying to break down the picture plane and um, and and Picasso too, you know, wanted to do that. He wanted to do something really different. So he'd also been very influenced by Matisse, who was about 12 years older. And Matisse had just painted this um, quite an idyllic picture called Le Bonheur de Vivre, which with a lot of languishing nudes. So Picasso sort of did his version. And it turns out to not be an idyllic scene out in, you know, in the fields and uh, the parks, but it's set in a brothel in Barcelona and the Avignon in it. It's actually, some people think it's set in Avignon, but it's not. It's actually a brothel in the Rue d'Avignon in Barcelona. So it's a bunch of prostitutes waiting around for, you know, their clients to come in. And he's just on that cutting edge of breaking into cubism. So the women's bodies are, you know, quite fractured, they're angular. And he was also, his third influence at that particular time was African masks. And a lot of the artists at that stage were influenced by them. So you see that the faces of um, the the women in this particular painting are uh, the faces of masks, essentially. Oh, wow. mm. yeah. Okay, so what was the reaction oh. when it, you know, he got everyone to have a look at it? Well, it was uh, everyone was horrified, essentially. Uh, you know, Matisse, uh, Matisse especially was horrified. The art dealer Ambrose uh, Vollard recoiled in horror at it. Leo Stein actually laughed at it. <laughs> And, you know, Picasso, who was really angry at mm. the reaction at, you know, this quite revolutionary painting, actually took the canvas off the stretcher, rolled it up and put it aside and actually refused to exhibit wow. it until 1916. So he painted it in 1907, left it aside for nine years before he exhibited it again. But, of course, when it was seen, it just caused an outcry. Mm. Um, what exactly were people so horrified by? I think... For the first time, well, well, they saw it as ugly. 
you know, they had been used to nudes, of, especially of women, as quite beautiful, as languid, um, as uh, uh, almost voyeuristic. You were, as the viewer, allowed to look at these women, but they didn't necessarily engage you. And here was a painting uh, of these nudes, very angular, very fractured with these African masks as faces and, you know, that whole, I guess, metaphorical use of a mask to hide what was Mm. beneath it and looking straight out of that picture plane. And it was huge. It was about, I think, about two metres by two metres. So it's quite a large painting as well. Oh, wow. Some more comments on Picasso coming in, Lorraine, actually. Uh, someone saying, look, he may have been a genius, but I get dizzy looking at his work. <laughs> I think echoing what Diane Sunbury was saying. So get dizzy, give me migraines. Uh, but someone else says, I adore Picasso. Everything from his brilliant early realistic and figurative drawings and paintings through his explorative phases, the development of cubism, which we'll get to in a moment, his heartbreaking Guernica, his raw obsession with women, and he was as unbound as his style. There you go. His wow, model great and Minotaur etchings, of which I have one from the second ever pressing in Paris, mm, mm, takes my breath away every single time. There is a Picasso fan. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So Cubism then. So, I mean, he's, he's got this picture and there was uh, Georges Braque who decided he'd go visit Picasso to have a look at it. Yeah, yeah. So there was, you know, Georges Braque who was also a painter. He was um, part of the group known as the Falls, the Wild Beasts. And they're, uh, you know, they'd been experimenting in colours but also really trying to break down that picture plane. And he came to see Picasso's work and they knew each other already. He was fascinated, absolutely fascinated. And, you know, Braque... Brock was already a member of a rebellious group. You know, he and Picasso thought they, um, you know, could do something different because what he was seeing was something completely brand new. So the two really began to collaborate and really together they became the co-founders of Cubism. Do we have rebellious art groups today? Yeah, I don't know that there's so much groups. I think they're individuals, you know, rebellious individuals. Yeah. All right, so... Cubism then, just talk us through what exactly it is. Mm. Okay, well, very revolutionary system of painting. What Cubism does, it actually shows multiple views of the same object simultaneously on a two-dimensional picture plane. So essentially I'm taking a 3D object or object or people and breaking that down to put it on a 2D picture plane, but I'm showing multiple views. And what is really interesting is in this particular aspect is if you look at that time period, Suzanne, and, you know, I always like to look at art in its social and historical context. And uh, it was around the same time that Einstein was formulating his theory of relativity. And, you know, and that changed people's notions and modern views of how space and time worked. And here was Picasso, who was also challenging people's idea of space in relation to time because you were looking at a painting that was not necessarily frozen in time but it was captured over time because not only are you looking at it from multiple views, you're looking at it from a multiple series of time lapses as well. So, you know, I can look at you from the front, I can turn Mm. to the side, look at you and that'll be a couple of seconds later. I can look at you from the other side. You might move your head while I'm talking to you. I'm trying to capture all of that on a 2D picture plane. So, yeah, yeah incredibly um, revolutionary. And, you know, and I think perhaps one of the most innovative 
um, and influential art styles of the 20th century. Yeah, and it was Matisse who had been so appalled in the beginning. He actually helped coin the term cubism. Yeah, yeah, he'd gone to see, uh, Braque had put a lot of his paintings uh, on exhibition around 1908 in the Salon. And uh, Matisse was one of the jurors and he actually made this offhand comment that, you know, oh my God, they're made of little cubes. And um, and there was a critic standing nearby, Louis Vorcelles, who uh, heard this and baptised the new style cubism. So, you know, it's interesting that another painter offhand comment and then a mm. critic actually coined the term. He was also the critic, interestingly, who coined the term folds. Oh, wow. How many people actually flocked to that cubist movement? You know, were there a wide range of painters then doing it? Oh, look, at first it was uh, Picasso and Braque and they worked so closely that often their paintings were hard to tell apart. So especially, you know, they didn't actually sign everything. But, you know, eventually more and more artists joined. But, of course, you know, Picasso being the innovator that he is, um, you know, sort of dabbles in this style, does a little bit, and then moves on to his next big thing. So Leaving everybody you know, else just yeah. in his wake. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, this is one of the things you really want to emphasise. He was so versatile. Mm, mm. I was incredibly versatile. You know, I mentioned in the introduction that he was also a set designer. And in 1924, uh, he actually designed the drop curtain for one of the Ballet Russe productions called Le Train Bleu, the Blue Train, that was set in the south of Paris. And it was a, a very interesting ballet because Coco Chanel also uh, collaborated on that ballet and uh, did the costumes for that particular work. But it was here um, while he was working for that ballet on that drop curtain that he actually met his first wife, Olga Koklova, um, who was a dancer um, in, you know, uh, in the Ballet Russe there. And um you know, interestingly, um, of course, you know, they had their affair, they got married, um, they stayed married for a while, but uh, eventually after, and their marriage was quite tumultuous, yeah. but after a while uh, they separated. But Picasso actually refused to divorce her because he didn't want to give away half his wealth <sighs> to her. And so he actually stayed married to her until her death in 1955. Oh, and so she still didn't get any of it, no. obviously. Yeah. My goodness. Wow. Uh, now, a couple of questions. Now, someone wants to know if the early days of photography in the 1800s influenced cubism because this listener is saying that's how I break down looking at a cubist work. Yeah, yeah. Look, photography influenced uh, so many artists and so many movements from Impressionism onwards because, you know, photography was actually able to capture the here and now. But also photography, if you really think about it, is a time-lapse art medium. And so that idea of, you know, creating a picture over time, I think really mm. fed into the development of cubism. Yeah. Um, and Lee is saying a visit to the beautiful Picasso Museum in the Marais district in Paris mm. is like stepping into a treasure trove of mm. his life. I'm sure you've been there. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. There's so many beautiful Picasso museums uh, throughout Europe. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the exhibitions mm. that are happening this year later. Mm. Uh, Lorraine Kipiotis is here. We are talking about Picasso. If you've got a question that you would like Lorraine to uh, to answer for you about Picasso, maybe you'd just like to oh, be a critic. Tell us what you think of Picasso's work. Uh, 1300 800 222, the SMS 0467 922702. All right, now we talked about um, Picasso's wife, but look, there are a few in Picasso's parade of women. Let's uh, run through them. Sure, sure. Look, he probably had, if you break it down, I mean, he obviously had lots of women. He was as passionate about women as he was about, you know, his artwork. 
Um, he probably had six major relationships, I think, and, um, you know, seven, actually, uh, yeah, six or seven. So, you know, he married uh, Olga Koklova, but before um, Olga, he uh, his, uh, uh, had a long-term relationship with Fernand Olivier, and um, this was sort of during his rose period, and she actually became the subject of many of his works during um, that time. But, you know, they separated, of course, and then after uh, um, his marriage with Olga broke up, he uh, met Marie-Thérèse uh, Walter, who um, was actually, and he lived with her in the flat across the street from Olga. So I don't know how that worked for them, but... Um, Anyway, um, Dora Maher, who was actually an artist in her own right, she was a photographer as well, and um, she uh, she was only twenty nine. Picasso was fifty five when they met. Then uh, Françoise Gillon, uh, and then uh, finally Jacqueline Rock, who became his second wife, and um, and I think uh, essentially uh, outlived him. Yeah. Now, from the list, they all stayed in their twenties. And mm. he got increasingly older. So by the time he married uh, Jacqueline Roque, she was 27. He was 29, which I think makes 79. him the Leonardo, sorry, 79, yeah. the Leonardo DiCaprio of the uh, the art world. Doesn't <laughs> <it>? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked, um, we mentioned uh, earlier, Lorraine, that Picasso is one of the world's most prolific painters. Give us, give us the stats. Okay, okay, okay. So the rundown is incredible because really he had a 78-year-long career. So, you know, he's making art for quite some time. He created over 30... 15,000 paintings, um, over 100,000 prints or engravings, 34,000 book illustrations, I think 300 sculptures and ceramics. So, you know, if you add them all up, it totals pretty close to 150,000 artworks. And what is really amazing about, you know, the prolific nature of uh, Picasso's output is that it's, it's actually quite an attractive field for thieves. Because a lot of his work can be seen as quite simple, it can also be copied as well. So there were all the copyists and the forgers who were making work. But, um, you know, apparently to this day, there are more than a thousand works of Picasso that remain missing from having been stolen. Uh, And one, of course, um, Suzanne, as you probably know, happened here in Australia. Now, I've never heard this story until until I knew that you were going to tell us about it. So this is um, The Weeping Woman and it was at the National Gallery of Victoria. Take us through what happened. Yeah, well, it's a striking painting. It's uh, in green tones and it's of a woman holding a handkerchief to her tear-stained face. And Picasso had actually made four of these uh, in 1937. We, you know, the National Gallery of Victoria ended up with one of them. And they paid $1.6 million in 1985, which at the time was the highest price paid for any artwork in Australia. And um, essentially, it was stolen in 1986 on the 2nd of August. And uh, it remains unsolved. The, The theft still remains unsolved and the culprits have never been caught, even though I have been told that people know who it was. Oh, right. But nobody's going to fess up and just say who it was. Wow. But, um, you know, one wonders sometimes whether it was an inside job because, you you know, the paintings were actually hinged to the wall at this stage and you needed a special screwdriver to actually unhinge now, the, the frame. Yeah, the hilarious thing is that, well, hilarious, yeah, the theft was discovered uh, on a Monday morning, but no, no one twigged for a while. Why not? No, no. Well, apparently we're missing on the Saturday. No one twigged till Monday morning because there was a, a you know, Obviously, the painting had been missing from the gallery wall, but there was a little registrar's card in this place stating that the artwork had been moved to the ACT 
everyone thought, oh, yeah, Australian Capital Territory, it's gone to Canberra on loan, on exhibition loan. But it was actually revealed later that ACT was an acronym for the Australian Cultural Terrorists. And, uh, and this was only discovered after the group themselves sent a letter to the, uh, to the gallery and to the age explaining what they'd done and, and uh, voicing their demands. Mm, so what did they want? Oh, well, it was interesting because, you know, they said things like, you know, we've stolen the Picasso as a protest against the niggardly funding of the visual arts in this hick state. <laughs> and um, they demanded, you know, a 10% increase in arts funding and the creation of annual prizes for young artists and threatened to destroy the painting if their request was not met within seven days. Okay, so how did the uh, the hunt progress? Well, they, you know, seven they, days wind down. Yeah, yeah, they called their bluff. Basically, more letters went across. You know, sort of, um, you know, lots of insults happening. They actually sent one letter with a burnt match enclosed, saying that they were going to burn the painting. Um, then finally, on August the nineteenth, so you know, a couple of weeks later, the age got a call saying that the painting was in Locker 227 at Spencer Street Station. So uh, the director of the gallery, the police, all, you know, head over to Spencer Street and there it was wrapped in, you know, brown paper and quite safe. Um, No demands were met. Um, you know, nothing happened and they still don't know who, who wow. took it. So they said, I think, uh, we never look to have our demands met. Our intention was to bring to public attention the plight of a group which lacks any of the legitimate means of blackmailing government. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do the arts funding happen to go up in Victoria? No, I don't. I don't think it did, sadly. Oh, good. Now, well, just while I'm thinking about it, Lorraine, have you watched the second Knives Out film at all? Oh, I have. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> And yes. I'm not going to no, give any give spoilers. Away, but, but look, some of the themes we were just talking yes. about definitely pop up in mm. that. And so, so there's a, a kind of parallel with the the theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre in uh, 1911, which I know you've talked to us about before as well. But Picasso had been one of the suspects in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Incredible, isn't it? Uh, um, ironically, uh, it, you know, he was 21 in 1911 when the Mona Lisa was stolen. And, um, and the, the parallel is that... Um, and this sort of tells me a little bit that the thieves, the ACT, the Australian Cultural Terrorists, had a, you know quite a good knowledge of art history because well, they, they were left. Artists, weren't yeah, they? I think they might have been <laughs> artists, and um, and they actually took the painting out of the frame and left the empty frame in the gallery as uh, the thief of the Mona Lisa had done. Sort of had you know uh, cut cut it out of the frame and wrapped it up and walked out with it essentially, but Picasso became a prime suspect. Um, you know, apart from being a suspect modernist who, you know, might have a grudge against more conservative art, uh, it had, it had uh, you know, turned out that one of his friends had actually stolen several Iberian sculptures from the Louvre. I mean, yeah, I don't know what was happening in the Louvre in those years. Mm. Apparently it was just so easy to walk yeah, out. Yeah, you know. security. Yeah, yeah very like. lax security. But um, he gave them to Picasso and, you know, grateful, Picasso gratefully gave him, paid him, I don't know, 50 francs a piece or something for them. But um, the police captured his friend. He said, oh, yeah, Picasso's got them all. Uh, And Picasso found out that the police were after him and he actually threw the sculptures in the nearby river to get rid of them. So, you know, he's a suspect anyway because he's already receiving stolen goods. Mm. Uh, He was exonerated. But then his friend, uh, the poet Apollinaire, was also a suspect, but it turned out to be neither of them. It was actually um, a 
disgruntled Italian who was working at the Louvre, uh, Vincenzo Perugia, who thought that Napoleon had stolen the Mona Lisa and he wanted to return it to Italy. That was an act of nationalism. That's now, right. Um, one of my texters says um, the SBS series about the theft is mm. brilliant and heartbreaking. A brilliant young artist falsely accused suicided as a result. Is that what happened to um, Apollinaire? Yeah, 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 right. yeah. So, yes, it's actually, uh, I think that's a four-part series mm. on SBS. It's an excellent an excellent mm. series. Uh, Lorraine Kipiotas is here with me on Nightlife on this Saturday night. Suzanne Hill with you. We are talking about Picasso. It is the 50th anniversary of Picasso's death. We're about to get to one of the big ones. I'm going to bring Lisa in Melbourne in because she wants to ask about this one. Hello, Lisa. Oh, hi. How are you going? Good. Now, you've actually got a, a print of uh, one of the Guernica pictures. Yes, I do. Yes, I got it. Yeah. Um, I was so lucky to be in Berlin and go to see the um, exhibition in the Mies van der Rohe building, which I was very excited about in my uni years. And um, But then since I've got that print, which was one of his Cubism ones, um, people have told me that it's actually about rape. And I just wanted to ask a question about... Um, whether that was one of his themes. That's uh, that's a really good question, Lisa. Uh, you know, the painting is about war and essentially the death, the destruction and uh, the horrific acts that happen in war. So, you know, I've no doubt that, you know, rape is a part of that and, um, you know, apart from the killing that goes on in this particular painting. But, you know, I can tell you that uh, he painted it in reaction to the destruction of the town of Guernica, which you probably already know, um, by, you know, Franco's German and Italian allies. And, you know, I think something like one third of the population of the town uh, was actually, well, was either killed or seriously injured. So it's, a, I mean, in a way it's a figurative rape, mm. if not a, mm. an actual mm. rape. Mm. Yeah. Um, Thank you. All right. Thanks very much, Lisa. Have you got that one hanging on the wall? Thank you. No, I've taken it down. Yeah, why is that? <laughs> oh, I didn't feel really comfortable with that sort yeah. of. Yeah, I can. I can imagine it's a very hard painting to live with because it is. Um, it's quite striking and quite harsh. I mean, there. You know, there's three or four screaming women in the painting. You know, a horse that's dying. There are dead bodies on the ground, and you know, it. It's in a way, a beautiful painting because of the style it's been made in, but also harrowing, very, very mm. harrowing. Yeah, yeah, very harrowing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no, I've, I haven't I haven't been able to live with it. So, yeah, anyway, thank you so much for your explanation. Welcome. I really Good. appreciate it. Uh, thanks very much for uh, for calling in uh, there, Lisa. Yeah, so tell us a bit more about it. I mean, he painted this in three weeks. Yeah, yeah. Well, he'd actually been asked by the Spanish government to uh, to make a work for the expo that was happening in Paris for the Spanish Pavilion, and uh, you know the town of Guernica had been bombed in on April the twenty sixth, nineteen thirty seven. Um, Picasso was already in Paris, sort of preparing and thinking about ideas, and uh, it was for the Paris World Fair, basically. And so he. Um, essentially made a whole lot of drawings, his ideas, you know, started happening and he produced it essentially, yeah, in pretty much a month, you know, just under a month. It was there and um, and it was put on, you know, into the pavilion and actually also accompanied um, by a lot of newsreels about what had been happening, you know, as well. 
Uh, now, there's a report about a Nazi officer seeing mm. the picture. Tell us about this. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Picasso uh, stayed in Paris during the Second World War and um, apparently the Nazis were forever going to his apartment and ransacking it and looking for, I don't know what, or, you know, I don't know, um, evidence of him being with the resistance. I don't know. But uh, they saw a picture of Guernica in his studio and apparently the Nazi officer uh, said to him, oh, did you do this? And Picasso turned to him and said, no, you did. Wow. Wow. Where is it? Oh, well, it's back in Spain now. Right. Which, yeah. which uh, gallery? Which uh, city? And I'm pretty sure it's in Madrid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that Pablo Picasso, Pablo did not want it to go back to Spain as long as the dictatorship existed. And then, you know, after Franco's government fell, um, it was allowed. I actually saw it many, many years ago um, uh, in New York. Actually, so you know, I think it was taken care of in other institutions before it went back yeah, to Spain. Yeah, then it went back. Mm. Wow. Now, look. Apparently, he was so prolific and has such a rock star <laughs> that there is always a Picasso exhibition on somewhere in the world. I love this. Still, still. Well, I guess this year, still, especially. Yeah. Do you know? It's. I had a conversation with Edmund Capon many years ago, um, Suzanne, and I actually said to him, "So, um, you know." And we were talking about the Impressionists and Picasso. So I said, so blockbuster exhibitions, who'd bring more people into the art gallery, the Impressionists or Picasso? And you had to think about it really, really carefully. And he actually said, you know, I think the the Impressionists would just win by whisker, but Picasso, hot on the heels. So, yeah, I think there's a Picasso exhibition always somewhere in the world. But this year especially, it's a bonanza year. 50th year of his death. And um, there are so many institutions, especially across Europe, that are marking this particular anniversary. Um, I think around 50 exhibitions have been organised under the banner of Celebration Picasso um, and, you know, organised by the ministries of both Spain and France. So there's, you know, something happening in the Musée Picasso in Paris that you mentioned in the Marais. Um, The Musée Picasso in Malaga, which is Picasso's hometown, would also host an exhibition and that will go, I think, later on to the the Guggenheim in Bilbao. Um, There's also exhibitions of his sculptures, his ceramics. Uh, The Reina Sofia in Madrid are actually doing uh, an exhibition that shows the turning point in his artwork um, after he left his rose period behind. So, you know, that's interesting. And there's also museums that are showing his artwork in uh, comparison to artists that influenced him or that, you know, he looked to, revered artists such as El Greco, as an exhibition at the Prado, Poussin, the Musée uh, de Beaux-Arts in Lyon, and Juan Miró in the Musée Picasso in Barcelona. And I think the Musée in Luxembourg is actually holding one about the relationship between Picasso and Gertrude Stein. Wow. Uh, Now, one of my texts says Guernica actually came to the NGV in Melbourne before COVID. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't realise that, but mm, I'll Uh, look into that. (laughs) Now, um, you just mentioned Gertrude Stein. A lot of people have this idea of Picasso as a misogynist, someone who uh, used women up and then kind of discarded him. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, I have many views on that, Suzanne. Um, Look, I don't know. I think... uh, I don't want to call him a misogynist because he was particularly passionate about women. But then, you know, you've got to realise he didn't treat a lot of his women really, really well. But he did have long-lasting relationships with many of them. And perhaps it was his platonic relationships that actually lasted the longest. And certainly, you know, Gertrude Stein, you know, was one of them. And, um, you know, she was a hard-hitting woman herself. He painted a portrait of her that 
took him so many overpaintings just to get right and he couldn't get the face right and eventually uh, after he'd been influenced by the African masks actually painted her face as a you know quasi mask an African mask and you know when Gertrude said but you know Pablo it doesn't look like me and he said oh it will Gertrude it will. Um, look, some some last words, I guess. Uh, you know, good artists copy, great artists steal. Uh, tell us about this this phrase and how it's relevant to Picasso. Yeah, look, I love this phrase, and it's often said that Picasso stole his ideas, and that he was, you know, uh, a little bit of a magpie taking this and that, and you know, making it own his own, and just changing things. And um, you know, he always said he did this with everybody. He did it with Matisse. He did it, you know, as I mentioned, the artists that he looked to, El Greco. Velazquez Goya, you can always see something in Picasso's painting that refers or references these great artists. Manet was another one. But he, you know, he always said, you know, um, make it your own. Don't copy it. Steal the idea. It's actually a quote that comes from T.S. Eliot, you know, and and of course T.S. Eliot said it about, you know, writers, immature writers copy, mature writers steal. (laughs) And I guess the same can be said of, you know, mature Picasso. Yeah. Um, now, look, this is from Rachel in Ellenbrook, Western Australia, who says, I went as a private chef to a billionaire and his family. He had a Picasso hung in the toilet that was rarely used by anyone other than the staff. Oh, to have such money, Suzanne. Oh, well, that's, that's billionaires for you as well. So, look, you're saying, look, he's probably one of the, certainly up there, the greatest artists or the most influential of the 20th century. Who are the other serious contenders Oh, to that? look, you know, Matisse, definitely Matisse. And I know, you know, Picasso always looked to Matisse and they were sort of frenemies, I guess. You know, Picasso uh, respected but was quite jealous of, you know, what Matisse was doing. And Matisse, you know, quite respected what Picasso was doing as well. So both of them were really, really hard-hitting, you know, artists. And then you really look at the sort of the further breaking down of the picture plane and that sort of pathways through to abstraction. And I guess, you know, uh, jumping forward about another 40, 50 years, someone like Jackson Pollock, Mm -hmm. you know, who truly breaks down the picture plane. So it's no longer really about representational art at all. It's no longer, you know, harking back to that Renaissance idea of looking at a view out the window. Mm. So, yeah, there's there's a few there's a few hard hitters there. Mm. Uh, uh, Lindsay is just confirming Guernica is at the Museo Reina Sofia, Sofia in Madrid. In, um, in Madrid. Mm. And I suppose with that many Picassos, most decent-sized art galleries around the world would have one. Oh, they? yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. I'm really quite excited, Suzanne. I'm actually uh, going to Spain next year. I'm going to take a tour to Spain next year. Uh, you know, for the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And uh, we're going to be in Barcelona. We're going to hit off in Barcelona and then we're actually going to eventually get to the uh, Guggenheim in Bilbao. So I get to see lots of Picasso. So very excited. All right. We'll have to get you on the phone from there. You can give us a foreign correspondent report. (laughs) Lorraine, always lovely to uh, to chat to you and so nice to hear from um, so many of you on the text as well and and Lisa on the phone. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us on this Saturday night. My pleasure, Suzanne. Lorraine, keep who is uh, from the National Art School. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.